Let's pray for another church in our community. We do that every Sunday, and I like to begin our morning that way. Lord, this morning I want to pray for Highland Terrace Baptist Church. Um, I want to pray for Chet Haney and his wife, Terry. Lord, we are thankful for uh, another church in our community, so many churches in our community that we have to be thankful for. just want to be thankful uh, this morning, especially for um, Highland Terrace, uh, just the many years of faithful ministry that... Um, Highland Terrace has had in our community. I'm thankful that uh, you have used them as a people, Lord, that they, um, we've consistently served beside them, lived beside them, worked beside them, and uh, count them brothers and sisters in the faith and in Christ, and celebrate that uh, you have uh, been salty, bright, and aromatic to this community through them for a long time. Lord, I pray, we want to pray for uh, Chet and Terry. I want to pray for their marriage, Lord, just knowing the the rigors of ministry and the, um, the uh, potential pitfalls, Lord, I just pray that you would guard them in their marriage, that you would keep them close to you and keep close to each other, Lord. I pray that they would um, walk in what, they're, uh, what Chet is preaching and what uh, they're hearing together as a people, that uh, they have a front row seat. Uh, church family has a front row seat to that being lived out in, uh, in their home, Lord. I pray that they'll find purchase there first. I pray that his preaching will be an overflow of what's happening at home and with those that are closest to him. Um, Lord, we just want to lift them up and ask you to be glorified through their ministry this morning. Uh, thankful for the opportunity to lift them up this morning. Uh, Lord, I want to pray too about how we spend these next few minutes. Lord, I um, feel like there's such great news here. And I pray that you will speak um, through this time, that the Holy Spirit will uh, give us some uh, insight into the the wonderful, uh, amazing uh, time that we walk in and the Savior that we walk with. I just turn this time over to you, Lord, and um, pray that you'll use it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Actually, uh, if you'd like to, you can be in chapter 4 for a few minutes. We, uh, each week, welcome our our visitors, and um, we may have some encouragement to you as visitors that if you're visiting a church home, that you will, you know, some things to look for. Um, I know that looking for a church home um, is not easy, and uh, churches can be so different, yet we can have so much in common. We do have so much in common. We can be wildly different. I, I think in some ways, what we've been doing these last few weeks is we've had a series of messages on what to look for in a church. Um, in some ways, they... Um, have been targeted specifically not at the preaching, not at the worship and song um, so much, not at facilities, which are some things that we might look for in a church if you're visiting a church for the first time, but what to look for in the people. It's kind of what we've been considering these last few weeks, maybe a, a month and a half or so. Uh, and it began in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. And it, it doesn't end today, but today's sort of a culmination, kind of a capstone of where we've been these last few weeks. So I want to read this together, and then we'll, um, we'll go from there. We're going to be spending the majority of our time in verses 1 and 2 this morning of chapter 5. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, 
doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as as good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Before I read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, I want to just sort of gather up the goods from those verses that we've been in these last few weeks. Uh, Some things to look for in a church family, things to look for in Christians, brothers and sisters in the faith, some things that we want to be as a church. We want to speak the truth with one another. We don't want to glad hand each other. Fake it till you make it. We want to speak the truth to one another. We want to build one another up with our words. We don't want to corrupt and damage one another by the things that we say either to or about. We want to build one another up with the words that we've been given. We want to work hard so we'll have something to share. We'll have a mindset of this otherness to our hard work. It's not just so we can build bigger barns and get more stuff. We want to work hard together as a people uh, between Sundays so that we'll have something to share with those in need. We want to deal with anger quickly and expeditiously. We don't want the sun to go down on our anger. We want to keep short accounts with one another. And we want to forgive each other as we've been forgiven. Not if you sin against one another, but when you sin against one another. The reality of life together in a church family. I think this list so far, even before we consider this verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 this morning, is a pretty amazing list, and it would make for a pretty remarkable people. I think in some ways it's been challenging for us as a people, as a church family. I've heard from some of you things that the Lord has uh, said to you through these sermons and things that you are considering and working through. But in some ways, I think this list is a, a sort of affirmation for me that this is a pretty remarkable people. It really is. I think there's some things that we can grow in. But so far in these last few weeks, I've had lots of opportunities to think about occasions where each of you are moving this way. And it's commendable, lovely, and praiseworthy. So before we look at these next few verses, I just want to commend you and encourage you. Okay, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, where we'll be this morning. I've broken these two verses down into um, really uh, four pieces. And that's going to be our plan for the morning. We're going to look at the first three pieces. I'm going to unpack them and expose them. And we're going to save the very last piece for the Lord's Supper. Okay, so the map for the morning is we're going to sort of unpack the luggage in the first three quarters of these two verses. Okay, And then I'm going to have some application for you. I have a couple of slides to help you because it's not complicated. It's just you're going to have to use your noggin. Okay, So the slides that I've had prepared I think are going to be guides for, for you. Uh, but if, if you came here not expecting to use your head, I want to encourage you in that. And if, if some of you think, man, church, I, I just don't want to use my mind uh, at church, I, I, uh, that's the place to use it. You know, some folks know more about their engine or their, their rifle than they do about their God. You know, and I just want to encourage you. You know, this is a great opportunity to use your head with something that is redemptive and um, amazing. So let's climb into these first two verses of chapter 5. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The first part that we're going to unpack there is this first little section here, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. The word therefore ties verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 to the previous paragraph, which is why I read these together and and connecting to them together. Uh, These little insertions with the numbers that we've put in our Bibles, uh, they weren't there originally. (laughs) So they can sometimes disconnect things that shouldn't be disconnected. And these first two verses should not be disconnected to the previous section that we've been in. In some ways, they serve as a capstone bringing together all the things that we've already talked about this morning. Paul calls the Ephesians here to imitate God. This is a rare call. If you were here last week, you know that we considered a few um, conformity passages, uh, conformity pattern passages. Be holy as I am holy. Forgive as I have forgiven. Uh, Conformity passages are not completely unfamiliar in the Bible, but one thing that is rare is the verbatim statement to imitate God. And that's clearly what Paul is saying right here to imitate God. He encouraged imitation of himself, which is just hard to imagine. Paul was a pretty amazing guy, um, quite gifted. He encouraged imitation of other brothers and sisters in the faith. But this is the only occasion in our Bibles that Paul calls us to imitate God. And the way in which we are to imitate him is clear. He says here, imitate God as beloved children. This word beloved is a a word that might be familiar to you. Maybe you've read the Gospels where you've heard uh, occasions where, like for example, at Christ's baptism where God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The word beloved doesn't just mean loved. It means loved as if you're my only son. It's a profound word and a profound love. And when we're, when Paul uses that word for us here, we should just stop down and consider, wait a minute, the same word that he uses of his own son, the kind of love that a father has for his only child is the kind of love that he has for us. Man, that's remarkable to think about how many Christians there are that are following him and have followed him over the couple thousand years since Christ ascended to think that he loves us in the way that he would love an only child. Never neglecting a single one of his own. Never distracted with any of the others. Always available, always attentive, with an intimate knowledge of whatever it is you're going through. That is a beautiful kind of love. The next phrase here in in this... um, uh, passage here in chapter in, in chapter five verse two is to walk in love. This is the next little thing I want to unpack. The first was be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, the second one here is to walk in love. The beginning of verse two. This is Paul's third instruction to walk. Okay, he began chapter four with the encouragement to walk worthily, and then later on in chapter four he said, "Don't walk as the Gentiles walk." And then here in chapter 5, he says, he charges them to walk in love. This word walk is a present tense imperative. It's calling them to make this their ongoing habit, their daily habit. It's hard for us to imagine what walking would sound like in that context. But when someone charges you to do something in the manner that as if you walk, you do it every day. They didn't have cars. Very few of them likely had mules or donkeys or anything like that. 
So they walked. And it wasn't impressive. It wasn't spectacular. It's just a way of life. And that's what we're called to here is a way of life. It's not a one-time deal, but a daily expression of love. Now, the kind of love that he speaks to. I want you to think about this for a moment. Um, If we just had one word for ten different things, you might think that's sort of primitive. Okay, Contrast that with a society that has ten different words for every single thing. You would think them more advanced. Okay, think about this for a minute. If you were to move to an island and you were going to start up a new language, you would be very primitive and you would likely use one word for many things. And as you grew and developed the language, then you would have many words that would reflect distinctions in certain things. Now, here's where I'm going with this. C.S. Lewis had a word for something that I think that we're guilty of often, oftentimes is chronological snobbery where we believe that we are the most advanced, illuminated people in the history of mankind. When you go back 2,000 years and you look at the context in Ephesus and you look at the the, uh, Greek language, you realize that they were far more advanced than we are when it comes to the concept of love. We're the primitive ones. Okay, They had four different words. They actually had seven different words for love. Okay, We, on the other hand... Uh, we, we love Jesus. We love our families. You may love your, I hope you love your spouse. You love your children. Okay. You love the shoes that you got at the store this last week, and you love the burger that you had at lunch yesterday. Man, that's a primitive understanding of love. And we could do with a little more developed and advanced understanding of love. They had four that they mainly used, four different words for love. It was the word storge, the kind of love that a parent had for their child. Phileo was the kind of love that a friend had between a friend. Eros was erotic kind of love, sexual kind of love. And the word that's used here, a very distinctive use of it here, is the word agape. This word means selfish, selfless, excuse me, sacrificial love. Selfless, sacrificial love, specifically for the undeserving. That's the kind of love that we're being called to walk in that kind of love. Now, in this next phrase in chapter 5, verse 2, part B, we're to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Christ is the model for the conformity pattern here. Here's another conformity pattern. He is the model here. We are to model after him, the word just as says and means just as. It doesn't mean sort of like, kind of like, roundabout like, similar to. It means just as Christ. We are to love just as Christ. Two things. Loved us and gave himself up for us. The tense of those two verbs, he loved us, he gave himself up for us, are both aorist tense. They point back to something that happened at a point in time. And if you're wondering, I hope you you can make a beeline to something that happened at a point in time where Christ loved us and gave himself up for us in and through the cross. It was there he gave himself up. This word here, giving himself up, means that he handed himself over. He gave himself over. It was not something that he was fooled into doing. He wasn't duped. He wasn't forced. He wasn't coerced. 
He wasn't a victim. He was a willing and active and loving, sacrificially participant in the venture of the cross, giving himself up as a sacrifice, like a good shepherd does for the sheep. And he did it for us. Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. I think Paul had an understanding of the sense of irony that he did it for us. That he did it for the likes of us. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, this is a common theme for Paul. He must have understood the irony that he died for the likes of us. It really is a scandal. If you stick around Crosspoint long, long, you'll hear that word used often. That's the scandal. That the kind of love that God has had for us in Christ was not a love that was merited or deserved. It was a love for the undeserving, and it truly is a scandal. It was a love for an undeserving bunch. Just the words that come out of the passage I just read, a bunch of people that are weak. The kind of love that he had for us is a love that would, was for a bunch of people that are ungodly. The kind of love that he's had for us is the kind of love that he said on a bunch of people that are unrighteous, that are sinners. We could add some other words to this. A bunch of people that are inconsistent. A bunch of people that are frail. A bunch of people that are disappointing. A bunch of people that are often distracted with meaningless stuff. He said his love on people that are selfish, proud, and truly undeserving. And that's the kind of love that he's called us to. Just as. Not sort of like. Not kind of like. Now this is the point in the sermon where um, I want to just ask you to consider something. What's just been asked of us through the scripture. If we're going to be really, really honest with ourselves... If you're really, really honest with yourself, and this may be the first time you've ever really been just brutally honest with yourself in church, but I want to invite it right now. Think about what's been asked of you to love people who are undeserving and to love them sacrificially at great cost. Okay? We've got to admit that that's a drag. Let's talk about it. Let's think about that for a minute. We've got to be really honest with one another and recognize that through the lens of the world, through the lens of life as we know it, To spend yourself on people that are distracted, frail, weak, disappointing. The only thing they're consistent in is being inconsistent. Humankind is going to be a drag. To be really honest. What he's called us to here at first blush has got to be a huge drag. Think about this. By definition, a sacrifice is giving up something that's really important to you that you really want, right? That's the definition of a sacrifice, and that's what we've been called to. Okay, so if we're going to do that for a good person, we might scarcely do that. But to do that for somebody who's undeserving? Let's just be really honest before we continue on. Because I think that's the only way we're going to find some help here in a minute, is if we reckon with first. What we're being called to here is bizarre. What we're being called to here is not anything that we see anywhere else in the world. Everything else in the world is based on merit. 
You get the goods because you deserve it. The kind of love we're talking about here and the kind of love that we're being called to is so bizarre that we've got to address the reality right up front that it must be impossible and it's got to be a drag even if it is possible. I've got some helps for you. I want to deal with some helps in a moment, but first I want to deal with what we've been called to. I don't want us to miss that we've been called to imitate God. Here's the first thing I want you to get and I don't want you to miss. He has not called us to something that he won't enable us to do. He has not called us to something that he won't enable us to do. I think sometimes we think about God and some of the things that he's called us to do, some of the conformity patterns that I've mentioned already this morning, the forgiveness thing from last week. We think about him like he's a coach calling a bunch of short people to dunk. Man, that would be cruel, wouldn't it? But yeah, we get out there with our basketball and we go through dunking practice all the time, not ever thinking about what are we actually doing here. Why would he do that? I want to deal with the first reality that we are called to imitate God and he has called us to do something that he is enabling us to do. I want you to notice, first of all, that thankfully this passage doesn't say imitate God so you'll be beloved children. Let's start right there. It doesn't say imitate God so you'll be beloved children. Now that's impossible. If you're going to somehow become one of his by imitating his, that I guarantee is impossible. He took the initiative to adopt us into his family and to enable us and to empower us in order that we can imitate him. He hadn't just called us to dunk. He's actually going to enable us and empower us to do it. We imitate him as his already adopted. Remember, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Thankfully, we didn't have to achieve this adoption. He adopted us and he's enabled us to love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. I want you to listen to that passage for a minute. I'm going to say it again, and I want, to, I want you to understand it rightly. We love because he first loved us. What I don't want you to do is I don't want you to think about that passage in a reciprocal sense, that he loved us, so yeah, we're going to reciprocate and love him. That's not what that passage is saying. We love because he first loved us, which has enabled us and empowered us to love. Man, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. If you've been called to do something, you can rest on the knowledge that he's enabled you and empowered you to do it. And he's also given you the live-in person of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit to enable you and to empower you to dunk. Man, we've got to start with the reality that he's called you to do something that you actually can do to love the unlovable. To love them, not like your burger, but to love them sacrificially like agape love. Man, that's good news right off the bat. He's called us to imitate the God or the kind of love that Christ has had for us as you love one another. You really have to believe that you're capable to do what he's calling you to do if you're in Christ. That's the caveat. 
if you're in Christ. Now, let me encourage you with just a little side thought here. A couple places where I get derailed when a passage like this and a thought of notion of loving like Christ has loved. Uh, a couple places where I get derailed is the thought that sometimes I don't feel it. Anybody else? Just me. Sometimes I don't feel like loving someone else who doesn't deserve to be loved. Anybody else? Okay, well, no worries there because you can press on in it even when you may not feel it. And even when it may not be your first impulse. I'll just tell you right now, when I'm asked to do something for someone else, even if it's someone deserving, usually my first impulse is, man, I got a lot of stuff to do. Anybody else? Okay, but the good thing is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. So that first impulse can be set aside as you walk with the Lord and the Holy Spirit gives you self-control to then go walk in love. So don't be derailed by your first impulse and don't be derailed by something that you don't feel at times because we can walk on in obedience because we've been enabled to do so. Now, that was the first thing I wanted to share with you is just the realization that we have in in fact been called to imitate God And we've been empowered and enabled to do so. Now, here's the second thing and the rest of the way I want to spend the morning. I want to give you some helps so that love won't be a drag. Okay? Three helps so that love won't be a drag. Because I believe that loving just as Christ loved isn't a drag. The first help is to view God's law and commands as blessing. You may not have been paying attention over these last few weeks or this morning if you're visiting here for the first time. And I read back in Ephesians chapter 4. You may not have noticed this or really thought about this. But what we've been considering these last few weeks in some ways is a law. What we've been considering the last few weeks in some ways is commandment. I've used the phrase often, and I hope you've been paying attention, is the, the term imperatives. That's what imperatives are. We've been commanded to do something through this passage in Ephesians chapter 4. And you may not realize that we've been commanded to love. John chapter 13 verse 34 says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. This is later on in the chapter where earlier in the chapter he washed their nasty feet. The king of kings and lord of lords stooped like a slave and washed a bunch of disciples' nasty feet. And he commands them later in that chapter to love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's first reckon with what we've been called to do is is a commandment. You may not realize these are commands we've been considering. They're not suggestions. They are commandment. And I want to encourage you to view God's laws and commands as a blessing. Because I think how you view commandment, how you view imperatives, has a lot to do with follow-through. So I want to help you with something that I've just really been studying this week. The three purposes of the law. I, I thought this morning I might have, somebody, might have y'all show, have a show of hands of who knows what the three purposes of the law are. But then I thought somebody might be embarrassed if they actually did. But I would be surprised if many people in here know what the three purposes of the law are. Okay, the three purposes of commands, we might rephrase it. 
Okay, it's actually a developed view in the reform circles and also a very developed view in Lutheran circles. The Lutherans actually developed a, 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 a significant um, development in a book called the Book of Concord. Okay? The reformers also developed three distinct purposes of the law. Okay, so here's the first purpose of the law. And here's a way to think about laws and commands. Okay, here's the first purpose of the law as a curb. Okay, the first purpose of the law is to restrain evil. It curbs people and keeps them sort of in boundaries. If you think about it, the law has been written on the hearts of man, then we can expect that a tribe in Africa or the Aborigines in Australia or, or places like that, that they know, too, that murder is wrong. That they know, too, that thievery is wrong. Okay, he's written the law on the hearts, and the law serves as a curb. I found this actually from the book of Concord. Uh, in this purpose, this first purpose of the law as a curb, that, that wild and intractable men might be restrained as though by certain bars. That's a, I love that old vintage language, that wild and intractable men. Okay, we're not talking about a saving sense here in the use of the law, this first use. It's a curb that keeps people, someone from legally coming here and shooting all of us. Okay? Well, here's the second purpose of the law. As a mirror. Okay, the first was as a curb, and the second purpose is as a mirror. The law illumines human sinfulness. Okay, the law serves as a mirror showing us where we've failed. The law serves, as Galatians tells us, as a schoolmaster and a tutor that drives us to Christ. This is what Paul was talking about. In this sense is what he was talking about when he said that for those in Christ were no longer under the law. This is the type of or the, the use of the law that he's speaking of. It's no longer a tutor and a schoolmaster, a harsh one for us. I found an excerpt in Pilgrim's Progress that I thought I would share with you. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, I want to encourage you to do so. It's just, just good stuff. This is in the second sense of the law. Okay, listen to this. This is faithful and Christian having a conversation. These are two pilgrims. Okay, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you kind of know the story. If you don't, Pilgrim is a pilgrim on the Christian journey, and he's interacting with different people along the journey, and here he meets with a guy named Faithful. Listen to this conversation that he has with Faithful. Faithful went on. Now, when I had gotten over halfway up the hill, yeah, I'm kind of parachuting into his story here, I looked behind me and saw someone coming after me as swiftly as the wind. He overtook me just about the place where the bench stands. And Christian interjected, ah, that's the place where I sat down to rest myself, remarked Christian. But being overcome by sleep, I lost this document out of my coat. Faithful says, but dear brother, hear me out. Christian's about to tell another story. And Faithful says, come back to my story. Faithful says, hear me out. As soon as the man overtook me, he was but a word and a blow. For he knocked me down and laid me out for dead. He waylaid Faithful. Hey, okay, listen to what he says. But after I had somewhat come to my senses again, I asked him, why did you do that to me? He said it was because of my secret inclination to follow, follow after Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the chest and beat me down backward. So I lay at his foot as if I were dead like before. All right, he's getting beaten to death here. 
When I came to myself, I cried to him. I, I cried for him to have mercy. But he said, I don't know how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. No doubt he would have made an end to me, except that another individual came by and caused him to stop. Okay, you got to lay the story here. Faithful's on this journey. He's, somebody comes from behind him, waylays him, and then just starts beating him about head and shoulders. Just about the time he rallies, he starts beating him some more. He asks for mercy. He says, I got no mercy for you. And he says, someone else came along, and were it not for this someone else coming along, this guy that came up behind me would have killed me. So Christian says, okay, well, who was that that made him stop? He says, I didn't know him at first, answered Faithful, but as he went by, I saw the holes in his hands and in his side, and then I concluded that he was our Lord. After this, I went up the hill. So Christian says, hey, Faithful, the man who overtook you, the guy that came up from behind you and tried to beat you to death, that was Moses. He's the one that came up behind you. He spares no one, and he doesn't know how to show mercy to those who transgress its law. I know it very well, replied Faithful. It wasn't the first time he met with me. He was the one who came to me when I lived securely at home and told me he would burn my house down on my head if I stayed there, as in if I didn't start the Christian journey. The reason I share that story is that illuminates the second purpose of the law as a mirror. Man, we stand next to the law as a mirror, and it beats us to death. We are destroyed before that law. The song that we started our morning with, it may have been the first time you've ever been here, and you're like, that's kind of a strange song, A Wretched Worm as I, that's seeing the law in that second sense as a mirror, that we are a bunch of wretched Worms before God's law. Man, let me just encourage you in this. If this is the only way you view the law, maybe in addition to the curb, if these are only two places you've got, are for the curb and for the mirror, then you're going to find loving others and obedience, period, quite a drag. I'll make you that promise. You're going to find loving others as Christ loved you a drag forevermore. If this and the curb are the only way you view God's law, your faith, I guarantee you, will be lifeless and unattractive. But you may plod along. You may find yourself, interestingly enough, a conviction junkie. Waiting for my convicting points in the sermons or convicting sermons themselves and coming up afterwards saying, man, I really appreciate that. You waylaid me this morning. I appreciate that. I can't wait till your next really convicting sermon. Man, there are times where we should be convicted, but we can be junkies just living from one conviction to the next. And that's seeing the law only in this sense here as a mirror where we find ourselves just wretched and thanking God for Jesus. Is there a place for that? Absolutely. But if that's all your faith is, man, you're going to be a downer. <laughs> and your love is going to be a drag. But here's the third use of the law. The first was as a curb. The second as a mirror. And here's the third purpose of the law. As a guide. After you are regenerate, after you come to faith in Christ, after you are waylaid by Moses... 
and you look to Christ. After the schoolmaster does his or her job, we'll say his job since we're talking about the law, and waylays you and leaves you devastated where you're saying, I am wrong and I am separated from my creator. I have wronged my God and I need a solution and I see him as Christ. Now the law serves a different purpose for you. It's not your harsh schoolmaster and tutor anymore. Now it's your guide. Now the law reveals for you what is pleasing for your heavenly father to your heavenly father. Now the law serves as a guide to show you what the garden full of blessing looks like. Now the law serves as a guide to show you the, the, the layout of the garden of blessing. Man, think about that. Have you, is that a new concept for you, to view God's commandments and laws that way? I want to make sure you get that. First, the law serves as a curb. Second, the law serves as a mirror. And third, and this will make for a joyful, a joyful walk of obedience. The law serves as a guide so that you can understand and know what your heavenly Father enjoys. What he expects of you. And it serves as a guide for a garden full of blessing. I'm just going to ask you this. Do you view his blessings that way? Or do you view his commands as blessing? Or do you view them as restrictive beatdowns that are just a drag? Man, if you're viewing it as this last sense, you're stepped into a whole new place of joy. Where you can serve him joyfully. So the first help is that God's law and commands are blessings. The second help is that uh, you need to realize that love and law overlap. Sometimes when we think about love, we think about law, we think about them as separate, uh, two separate, completely separate matters. What I want you to see in these next couple minutes is that law and love overlap. Galatians chapter 5 verse 14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love and law overlap. Romans 13, 9 says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of of the law. Love and law are part of the same conversation. That's what I want you to see. Love and law are part of the same conversation. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 15, the Sermon on the Mount, says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus fulfilled them by walking them out perfectly complete with a loving march down the Via Dolorosa dragging his cross for undeserving people loving us and giving himself up for us man I want you to see that love and law overlap they're part of the same conversation if the law can be summed up as love then let's work backwards Let's unsum it. Let's subtract it just for a minute and just consider the law puts flesh on the admonition to love. 
The law shows us what it looks like, like folks speaking the truth with one another instead of bearing false witness. We're going to unsum it and work backwards. Like speaking to build one another up. Man, love looks like former thieves working hard so they can share instead of stealing. See, we're working backwards. It looks like dealing with anger expeditiously and keeping short accounts with each other rather than committing murder. You see it? The law guides us into how we love one another. How do you love your neighbor? Well, you don't steal from him. You don't slander him. You're compassionate and kind to him. You don't murder him. Let's start right there. Man, the law shows us how to love one another. It's a tour guide to a garden full of blessing. Man, they're not contrary. They're part of the same conversation. It's no longer a harsh taskmaster, but it's a friendly guide. The third thing, this will take just a moment just for you to think about it. It's something I've introduced to you before, but if you're here for the first time, it may be a new concept. The third help for you so that love won't be a drag is to make sure that the imperative is connected to the indicative. To make sure the imperative is connected to the indicative. I'm going to show you here in this verse how those are connected. In chapter uh, 5, verse 2 specifically, look back at that. If you've turned the page or if you've wandered away from it somehow, let's go back and look at what it says here in verse 2. Walk in love. Okay, there's the imperative. It's the command. And here's the indicative. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Walk in love. There's your commandment. And you do that as you are holding on to the indicative as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. The imperative mood and the indicative mood, let me just take a moment. The imperative mood is a command. It's a call to action. And the indicative mood is like, like sharing facts. Okay, so if your action is not connected to facts, then it's going to be a disconnect and it's going to be bankrupt. Let me show you this little equation here that I've made up. It's really advanced, and it's a, it's, it's a pretty amazing equation here, and you can put that up. The imperative plus the indicative equals worship. You see what I did there? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Pretty complicated. The imperative plus the indicative equals worship. Here's the danger of disconnecting the two, disconnecting the imperative from the indicative. If you try and go about loving one another without holding on to the love that's been given you in the person and work of Christ, then guess what you're going to be? You're going to be a bankrupt legalist. You're going to be a heartless legalist that are loving one another like it's a big old drag. So don't disconnect the two. If you try and love others without holding on to how you've been loved, the indicative, you're going to be a lifeless legalist. And then if you take away the imperative, the command to love from the indicative as you've been loved, then you're just a lazy know-it-all. So that's why you want to keep those things together. The indicative or the imperative plus the indicative equals worship. I hope those will give you some helps for love, the kind of love that we've been called to. I need those kind of helps. The preacher is hearing the sermon with you this morning. Um, people aren't easy to love. They're not. My dog is easy to love. He's consistent. He's always there, man. He's he, he just is so predictable. 
and relentlessly there for me. But people can disappoint, right? People can be hard to love. I need some helps in how to love people sacrificially. View God's law and commandments as a blessing. Realize love and law overlap. And make sure the indicative is connected to the imperative. Now for the supper. The supper is part of our sermon in some ways. And I want you to consider the last part of the verse that we didn't really unpack there. That last phrase. And I'll read the verses together just so we have it all together in one package. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The words that are used there for offering and sacrifice point back to the words that are used all over our entire Old Testaments for the sacrificial system. Any Jew that was in the Ephesian church, and there likely was some complement of Jews in the church there, would have immediately connected to Paul's language. I guarantee Paul connected to that language and realized in Christ that he had a satisfaction of the sacrificial system in the person and work of Christ. And the satisfaction that he must have felt in just writing these words. But it wasn't just for Jews. See, the temple of Artemis was also in Ephesus. One of the largest temples in the Roman Empire. And you didn't have to be a Jew to be familiar with offering and sacrifice. And likely these Ephesians would have connected to the concept of these offerings of bulls and birds and rams and um, lambs and wheat and barley and wine. This would have been very familiar to them, even if they weren't familiar with the old Jewish sacrificial system. So the choice of these words are important in that Jesus gave himself over as a replacement for the book's worth of various offerings and preparations and rituals that only temporarily dealt with sin are not at all in the case of the pagans. Man, what a satisfying sacrifice. He gave himself up as the final offering and sacrifice, period. Period. No more attempts to satisfy a god or a goddess. For the one true God was and is satisfied with his one sacrifice, i.e. the word fragrant. It means the Father was satisfied. His once and for all sacrifice and offering meant the end of bloody sacrifices. His cross meant the temple would not be needed anymore, ever. In fact, destroy it, raise it. We won't need it anymore. The altar could be turned into an old antique, maybe a coffee table, maybe a real fancy ping pong table, but it's not going to be needed for sacrifice anymore because his sacrifice was the final one. What we do every single week when we take the supper is we remember that and we connect to that and we walk in that one final sacrifice, enjoying it as a fragrant and pleasing sacrifice to the Father. Let's distribute our elements.